Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular Nerds. And today we have a very interesting show. We have, first of all, we have Anthony Enco on the show. And I like, you know, honestly, I'm looking at your background on LinkedIn and it looks like the surface of Mars, which is probably appropriate for this conversation because you are an IT manager that is in charge of a network that can't have any access to really the public internet. So it's, it's as if you were building a network on Mars. So I think that's, you know, that's what we're going to title this ep- episode. You know, what would it be like being an IT manager building a network out on Mars without any internet access? Is that like an appropriate comparison? I, I think so, as long as uh, you consider there's other colonies that we connect to. Just none of them connect back to Earth or the internet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so the other colonies are are on like maybe the other side of Mars. And, but you, okay, I got you. I got you. So I, I don't even know where to begin. So I'm just going to let you maybe throw out some challenges there because you have a vast, you know, you, you've got some vast experience. What, what is this like compared to say, I don't know, managing a simpler network or what life used to be like? Sure, because uh, I do have experience with that. I've, I've built up a lot of uh, base-level networks. And it was uh, challenging until you could get your internet connection. Then Google's your friend. You can look things up. It's very nice. Mm. Um, in the environment that I work in now, it's almost as nice, but you got to swivel the chair to the right, maybe a yard, and then you can look things up on Google, but you can't copy things directly over. So biggest challenges we have are things like uh, importing critical updates, uh, repos, anything involving uh, licensing can become a hassle with some different vendors we have. Adobe, surprisingly, is pretty rough on it. Hmm. And just walk me through that. You know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, like a sixth grader here, you know, learning. This. Sure, so, sure. So why? Well, um, usually if you have something, especially with the way uh, enterprises are going now, uh, you install the program, uh, mm-hmm. you put in your credentials, and then it reaches out to the web and then validates it, downloads a key, and validates that your software is legitimate. Mm-hmm. When you can't reach out to the internet, mm-hmm. you have to work with the vendors, and they'll sometimes give you a crazy long, like 128-character hexadecimal key mm-hmm. that you have fun. to write down on paper, huh. drag it inside with you, and then... Mm-hmm manually type that thing in and hope you didn't miss anything. Oh, that sounds like fun. Sometimes, yeah. It, that might be like a job opening for somebody. Uh, <laughs> Wait, yeah, uh, entry level. Updates. <laughs> <laughs> entry level license updating person. Uh, now, you know, we're, we're trying to get around things like that uh, in the future. We're working on being able to do one-way you know, data diode kind of things. Mm-hmm. I've had them at other places that worked. We don't have one here yet, which is where a lot of the hassle comes from. Okay, so clearly there's a lot of benefits to why you're doing what you're doing, um, security-wise. I'm um, yeah, it's definitely uh, far more secure. Uh, we actually have two instances of a network configuration this way. One of them is just air-gapped completely. It has no classification level. It's just for our company's proprietary data. It makes it incredibly more difficult to exfil or for someone to get into it. 
But the one that I manage uh, primarily right now is an actual classified network where we have connections to our customer sites Mm -hmm. and use their networks. So as a result, we have to play by their rules and that's a big one. Don't let it touch things. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty interesting. What else do you have? I mean, I, I'm, I can, I'm tempted to ask how, how did you get here and, and why, you know, why you, why qualified? I mean, does it have anything to do with maybe being in, um, I don't know, were you in the U S air force or, or anything yeah. of military I mean, experience, you know, like maybe we go those, are, that road. those are fair. Okay. But that's a, that's totally a fair question. So back in 2000, I did join the air force. I was, uh, at the time, cryptographic systems maintenance, which isn't even a job anymore. Uh, it used to be just a card swap kind of monkey. It's fun, okay. fun gig. Uh, from there, that career field was merged into computer. Well, first of all, why was it well, fun? Well, it was kind of neat because you, you were a small number of people because not everyone could get the clearances required to do it. You had to learn basic electronic circuits. You had to learn how to use O-scopes and multimeters and stuff like that. And, you know, but it was boring, really boring work. Um, so from there moved on to, it merged up and became a computer switching and telephone networking kind of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of tell, what was the telephone stuff? Because that is exciting for me as, as boring it is for everyone else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was actually, uh, the first six years there, I was, <laughs> no, no, nothing cool like that. It was okay. actually one that most people probably won't have heard of. It was Redcom. Redcom. Uh, Redcom is, yeah, it's based out of, uh, I think, Victor, New York. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's what the Air Force purchased as part of their theater deployable communications package. Mm. Okay. And it's a standard 19 inch rack. I don't remember the number of U's, but all the cards fit in vertically. And it was just basic telephone switching services that you programmed on the fly out in the field and then mm-hmm. use fiber to connect the boxes together. You stack the boxes like Legos and then you have like a whole site on a couple pallets worth of stuff. Hub and old school hub and spoke. What were we doing? PRIs into that or what, how'd we get out to the PSTN? So from there we would uh, actually hook it up via, Oh gosh, just testing my knowledge here. A we T1 went way back. Card, like some old T1 cards or something or what? Um, we didn't use T1. We actually had, uh, we used PRI and okay. we connected that up to satellite terminals. Mm-hmm. And then those are what got us our links back into the actual uh, TSTN kind of telephone land where you could dial things long distance. But where we were, it was all internal. We had our own NPAs, um, our own extensions that we had set up. And these boxes were linked daisy chain. Uh, they were set up to be in a complete loop. Uh-huh. For fault, re- uh, fault, sure. For fault tolerance, however, there was no real way unless you had a main hub to get more than four connections to it. So it was just a big loop. But at the bottom of each of those, there was also an old Cisco switch, and so each of these boxes you drop off in someone's tent, and suddenly, boom, they got telephone up to like sixteen phones and enough for forty-eight people to connect to the the base network. No, wait a second. Tent, like literally tent. Oh yeah, I was in uh, deployed communications, so my whole job was to go places and set up bases where there was sand when we landed. Okay. 
<laughs> now, I never got to do that part specifically. I don't want to give people the wrong impression, but we did go to some pretty cool places. We did go to some places where there were no U.S. comms available, but I got to spend some nice time on a base in the UAE. So, uh, spent some time in Iraq. Uh, wait, are you saying that you, you uh, let me just make sure I understand this correctly. So we drop up these switches in a tent for phones. Are yeah. you saying it's connecting via satellite? Uh, yes, we, we connect these boxes back to the main communications tent. Yeah. And then we run some lines out to a little satellite terminal outside. That's, that's a different type of network that I've never been a part of, but that's pretty cool. And it actually was. It was it was a great fun two thousand to two thousand six time of my life. So you're in UAE. That's not too bad of a place. In the UAE, I got to that was actually a beautiful place. Uh, yeah. I've been to Did Oman. they have those man made islands back then? Did they have those man made like uh, you know, like pineapple islands that they made and all that type of stuff? Have you seen you know, those? It's funny you ask that. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was actually there in two thousand two. So they were building those. I mean, it's man-made islands. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty sweet. And, it actually is really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I've had a bunch of friends that have been over there and or worked over there. And I guess it's, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's pretty wild as far as, you know, I, you know, UAE's, it's not like, a, it's not like it's, it's, it's pretty rich, I guess. I, I guess you. It is incredibly rich. Like we used to drive downtown sometimes if we had time to. Uh-huh. And there was this giant mall that we'd go to and they had car dealerships in the mall. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking like Ford. We're talking like Maserati. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me pull out my Lamborghini and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Exciting. All right. So, so you move from there. Um, yeah. how'd you, how'd you get from, After like, that? so how'd you get from there to, you know, where you're at? So obviously that, that qualified you for what, what kind, just out of curiosity, cause I hear, I worked in DC for a long time and a lot of people go through, you know, have different levels of security clearance and everything. Is it pretty much like an in-depth background check or do they give you like a psych evaluation too? I'm just curious, like, you know, how, um, how, how much security clearance doth one need? It depends on the type of information you're handling. Uh, in my case, I don't know specifically the level of background information that they do. I know I have to submit like a 133-page thing, and then they give it to someone. I think it's a third-party investigation firm. And then they go out and talk to everyone you've ever talked to. Oh, wow. 133 pages. Um, you have to fill that out, or is it like, you know, like, is it like a multiple-choice type of thing? or? Oh, no, it's you got to fill it out. It's mostly you know where you've ever lived, what, who do you know, what references do you have, where have you worked, what was your timeline. Did you ever lie on a high school test? Anything like that? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think they went that deep, but I'm sure they asked someone. Okay, interesting. And they go inter- and then they go interview everyone. But yeah, so what qualified me for my position now is back when I was doing that, we had classified and unclassified networks running in these tents, carried my security clearance all the way up through when I was retired from the Air Force in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the last couple of years, I was monitoring in a giant like enterprise maintenance operation center, monitoring a bunch of classified networks and opening tickets on them and you know sending them out to wherever the ground station that worked on it was around the world for someone to physically go fix something. Um, after that, I came over here to where I work now and spent some time working in networking. That is my background. 
I go back to it whenever I can because it is what I know the best. Uh, spent three years in networking and then the management position opened and I was supposed to manage a network team. And they said, hey, you got a clearance. You want to go manage the uh, cleared people? No one's ever done that for us. I'm like, yeah, cool. Okay, nice. So from a, from a management perspective, from, from being a network from being a network jockey, you know, and, and pushing cards into stuff. Uh, how was, uh, how was leadership? How was a leader? Where'd you get your leadership experience from? And maybe just, a, a what are the biggest challenges you think from, uh, maybe from a, a technical, from a technical guy, a networking guy, um, in a leadership role? Sure. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I think anyone can face, and I definitely, did my best on it was you go from a position of working with everyone to we were in the same company. I knew them. I pulled a couple people from my old team to work with me and it's rough managing people that you've worked with as friends, as coworkers. Um, but as long as you understand what your role is and you know, what needs to be done, you can usually get around that. What I think was most challenging for me was coming from a, area where my job was to, you know, make VLANs, make trunks, create uh, company-wide networks, make sure it's working, create fault tolerance and redundancy mm-hmm. in switches and routers to managing people whose responsibility is Active Directory, Outlook, Exchange, because I've used them. Mm-hmm. But as far as installing them, knowing when someone's trying to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes on, well, we really need this. Uh, it was rough. I had to spend a lot of nights just doing research, trying to get myself up to speed on the different jobs of my teammates. And that's from a, is that from a kind of trust and verify type of standpoint? It is. I mean, we hire incredibly smart people. I love everyone on my team right now. And it's one of those things where I don't like not knowing what's going on. And I think that's a great quality. You have to remain uh, curious. You got to keep learning just because you take on a management position and you're not expected to push the buttons and make the things happen. You need to at least understand it to some level. I can only, I can only relate as a parent. <laughs> I can, you know what I mean? I can only relate as a parent and, and being a homeschooler and never being someone that I thought believed in homeschooling, but, but really, really believes in it uh, you know, quite a bit right now. When your, your kid's learn at an exponential level, I think. They can learn at an exponential level at home. Uh, and they very quickly really reach a point where you pretty much have to wash your hands of the level of math, at least for me. Maybe not for you. You know, Maybe it's English for you. I don't know. Maybe it's you know, English literature or something. Uh, but at some sure. point, your kid is going to vastly surpass you, um, you know, at like a sixth grade level. In some subject. Uh, so that's the only way that I can relate, except I have not taken up that additional study. <laughs> you, have, uh, you have hit incredibly close to home on that one. My kid's 11 now, and the stuff that he wants me to help him with, oh, like, I, I vaguely uh, remember this. Khan Academy is that available. I'm pretty sure Khan Academy is <laughs> out there. <laughs> uh, it's awesome. Um, okay, so, so I guess... For, from a security standpoint, you know, there's a big difference between s- security and, and network and, and people have the philosophies that you should definitely have your security guys separate from your network guys and there should be a checks and balances and kind of uh, balancing back and forth and a good security policy there. 
what's what's your general outlook on security in the environment outside of the complete lockdown? So, you know, your your network's almost completely locked down right now, so it might be easier to manage from a security standpoint. I guess my the question I really want to ask is how secure do you think the US government's network is? And do you even want to answer that? Um, I won't comment on their network, mostly because I don't know personally. However, what I can comment on is our own network that connects to it. And I know that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, like the DISA-STIG values, um, the different requirements for different operating systems, different programs, what security they want you to uh, enact, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. switches and you know buttons they want you to click inside the software. But we I have of course know all, all of that. those. I of course know all of that, but for our listeners, <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. But, but so, for our listeners, let's you know, let's um, yeah, you know, let's let in, enlighten us. So, DISA has a set of standards for hardening um, software, hardware, and enabling security to a level that they want, and it goes down from you know making sure that your FIPS compliant. Uh, yeah, a lot of it follows the NIST standards. Um, now, a lot of the comments that I get, you know, just from FIPS compliancy and whatever level of encryption they require. I remember, you know, the FIPS compliancy on VoIP standards back five years ago was some kind of 256-bit encryption end-to-end between sites, you know, whatever it is. And I, I don't know what it is now. But um, a lot of people say, well, yeah, we can check all the boxes, but that doesn't mean we're secure. And that is true. Um, we actually have a lot of, well, several, I'm not sure if I can say them, so I won't, uh, several different programs that we run scans against our own internal networks at least once a week, mm-hmm. sometimes more often. Mm-hmm. And anything that comes up as a vulnerability, we have to do. Like I said earlier, patching is difficult because we've got to get those patches usually hand carried in. Mm-hmm. But we are constantly no more than one patch cycle behind. Mm-hmm. And if we are a patch cycle behind, we need a really good reason for it. So um, that has got to be, and you have a very, a very motivated reason to do that all the time. But there has got yeah. to be endless companies out there that are just, it's got to be like just an, 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 open, an open marketplace, um, an open marketplace for people to just, you know, for security vulnerabilities, I guess. You could say. I don't oh say, yeah, I mean, I really like the word hacker. It's just kind of weird. But uh, well, man, it, you know, at the base of it, what is a hacker? There's someone that exploits a vulnerability. It's their job I mean, is much easier. Other, their job is much there's, easier. There's a lot more to it than that. But at the base level, the way I think of it is, they found a way in through whatever means. They've exploited a vulnerability to gain access to the things that I'm trying to keep from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, you know our job is to keep it from them, so that means keeping up with, you know, making sure all the security settings are set, um, making sure that we're meeting all of the requirements at a minimum. But then, on top of the DISA standards, on top of the NIST standards, on top of FIPS, each of our individual customers has additional security requirements that they might throw on us. Give me an example, or I don't know if I'd say an example. But is there anything out there for people listening to the show that they could that they could walk away with and be like, "That is great piece of advice." Well, like you should lock this down, or you should do this, or here's one thing that's going to make 
don't know if I'm going to say easier, security easier, but here, here's something that you can do that will vastly reduce X. Well, it's not easier, it's harder. And that's, that's why a lot of people don't do it. But one of the things that we have worked very hard towards and uh, at least one of the customers we have demands it is we make sure that all permissions are verified at least once a month. And that's not just for people in IT, that's across the board because we have people working on multiple different projects for multiple different customers. And sometimes they shift between them and they're not expected to go back. But we want to make sure that they don't have access to the data that they had before because you can't cross-contaminate things. So taking... So making sure that people's folder access is just as simple as that or access on SharePoint. And the easiest way to do that that we found is through Active Directory, to be honest. But you have to have a means of validating that need to know. And need to know is something that comes up in the classified environment all the time. You you can be cleared, but do you need to know it? If not, we're not going to let you in there. Hmm. It's changed so much since someone's BlackBerry server that they kept to their house years ago. Ugh. <laughs> we won't get into home servers. No. <laughs> I mean, the beds, that was just, that was the thing. That was the thing that many millennials probably don't know about. <laughs> just like, so, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's simple things like that, making sure that that's going on correctly. Um, keeping up with when people are fired or leave the company. You got to make sure to strip their rights immediately. Yeah. I wonder how many logins I still have at my old companies. More than you think. Probably. Uh, There's probably, there's probably some, there's probably some logins out there, like a Salesforce login. Like, Oh, this is nice. I can can get right back in. Um, I mean, these are all common sense when you really think about it. You don't want an ex employee to have access to a database. Okay. So it's common sense, but it's kind of, it's, it's like at the end of the day in whatever restaurant I look in and work in, we've got to clean out the refrigerator. We've got to do the, um, what is it? The, the, the scheduled maintenance to keep the machine from breaking down. We got them off the floor. We've got to do this. We've got to do, we've got to do all these things. Or if whether you're in a hospital, you got to clean the room every day and if you do it every, every day. But it's more how do you get people to do it every day? What's the system in place? Is there any management system or anything like that? And I really like the theme of it's not easier, it's harder. Because the the more you move, I guess the more you move up in life, even the more, the more success anyone experiences, it's usually due to, A, they've worked harder. And life doesn't, doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, doesn't get easier. I guess it could get easier if you're looking at it from a I got out of my teenage years and, you know, hormones and, and stuff like that. And that's back to the family and, and us dealing with kids again. But um, do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And uh, I forget who it was that said it. it was, it's a pretty popular quote out there, at least in my circles. It's you don't achieve your aspirations. You fail back to the level of your uh, systems, right? I mean, you can want, like for me personally, I want to lose weight. But if I keep eating cookies because they're available, it ain't going to happen. I need a system to stop eating the cookies. <laughs> hmm. Maybe not buy them. I don't know. But so, yes, what we have, when I started, I had a database admin. And you need to trick yourself with like fake cookies. You, 
You, you need do. Use, um, this is the way, okay, so I, I, this is just a complete side note, okay, but let me teach you how the, the, cookie, the cookie fix, okay? I'm just like, <laughs> I'm a big pro- proponent of like a ketogenic diet and a even carnivore diet to even go super, if you can go carnivore for, for 30 days, just try it. Literally, you, you just eat hamburger patties and that's all you eat for 30 days, okay? A little crazy. But if you want to... I, I think the my wife makes these chocolate chip cookie keto fat bombs. It looks like a it looks like a chocolate chip cookie cookie dough. It looks like a ball of chocolate chip cookie dough, but it's totally okay to eat. Tastes like like tastes like cookie dough. There's sugar free chocolate chips in it. There's I mean butter in it. It's great. But it has to be a system. You have to like trick the system. You know what I mean? It's it's almost like you have to like trick yourself. Sure. You know, and if and and if they're there right next to the regular cookies, I can at least eat the you know the ones to like trick myself. Anyways, um, we're failing back to the level of our of our systems. Go on. Right. So one of the things that I did when I came in here, I found out that they were using Excel spreadsheets for inventory, and that's great if you have a small inventory. But was it at least up, and it was definitely was not up in Google Docs. Definitely was not. No, no, because you can't get there from here. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, anyways, yeah, what was, so it was a spreadsheet. Used to live in North Carolina, right? Can't get yeah. there from here. Bridge and washed out. But so what we do? I had a. You just said washed. You just said washed. I did. Where, are you? That's from what the they said. You washed. Okay, my mother-in-law says wash. We need to wash. I don't clothes. actually say that. I don't. <laughs> I, but, I can tell uh, because that was there was a little bit of sarcasm in there. That's a behavioral derailer, by the way. <laughs> From a leadership standpoint, sarcasm is a behavioral derailer. I learned that. Anyways, ah, again, go so, on. I'm, I'm drinking a lot. My coffee's starting to kick in. Ah, cool. Okay. So I had a database admin working for me, super smart guy. Uh-huh. And I said, hey, shouldn't this be in a database where we can make sure that Certain data isn't changed manually. It has to be done through a ticket process. There has to be checks and balances. We have to create internal tickets that go to security to make sure that the equipment's allowed to come inside before it comes inside. Uh-huh. Automate, automatically throws out a request for a, for a sticker to be printed with a uh-huh. barcode that we throw on there. Automatically forces our desk side techs to put the stuff in there, to put it in place. Wow, that was, so that was pretty that. mind-blowing. That was pretty mind-blowing. It, it is, just... It's actually pretty cool. It's, it's homegrown. Guy's super proud of it. I'm proud of him. It's a great thing. Not everyone liked to, it. From spreadsheet to amazing system. <laughs> but the guys that I know that don't like it, don't like it because it forces them to do what they were supposed to do to begin with. Which is what? And I'm playing... Accurately I'm inventory down. things. Mm. Make sure that our security team validates equipment before it comes into the area put a sticker on it why do you think people use why do you think people use spreadsheets like that why do you think people do that so they can do it later and then later never comes Hmm. or they have a very few things to keep up with and they don't want to pay for a database i get that too Hmm. but Uh, in our case it's I'm thinking totally compliance. selfishly here. I'm, I'm thinking totally selfishly here because uh, I'm a very uh, a, a visual person when it comes to databases, CRMs, like however you want to look at your your data. I really like the spreadsheet look, uh, but a lot of databases are like single query. You have to like look things up, and then it pops up, and it's just not, it's not visually like appealing like a spreadsheet is. I'm just 
wondering if that's part of the reason why people do spreadsheets. Well, maybe uh, I could see that because I am a fan of Excel for everything in my personal life. Yeah. Not to, not to plug Microsoft at all, but they make good products. <laughs> but when it comes to something like this, uh-huh. I mean, he made it, it's, per, it's a GUI design. It's easy to follow. You can see what's going on in it. How long did it take? Uh, query. How long did it take? Cause this is, this is now we're getting down in the nitty gritty. How long did it take to build? So, this? Uh, like I said, he's a smart guy and he kind of had the vision going into it. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about the time it took to gather the requirements, what security wanted, what we wanted out of it, what our customers requirements were for reporting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably took four months, five months to get the first beta out. Okay. And that was with one guy working on it. How much time does it save? Do you think it does? Does it save time? That's just it. If you look at the way it was with just the spreadsheets, it doesn't save time Uh, because people were not keeping up with it. uh, So what it actually did was show hidden costs that we didn't have. um, For example, hidden costs we didn't have? How is that possible? That doesn't mean that's a double negative. Well, when it comes to time, if okay. people weren't doing the job before, then they weren't billing time to it. Mm-hmm. So we weren't paying for it. Mm. But because now they're being forced to do what we were actually required to do to begin with, mm-hmm. they're spending time on it. So it's actually costing some. This is crazy. See, this is the weird, this is the weird type of thing that in the non-security have to be secure world, an, an IT director would take to a board of directors and they would say no to. Uh, and normally, I think they would here too. However, it turns out we're actually contractually <laughs> obligated to these customers. That's what I'm saying. These sort of things. So, so you don't sell it on a cost basis. You sell it on a they won't give us more work <laughs> basis. Now, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing. So we're selling it on... because. Go ahead. Well, being able to print out a report on demand... Um, there's facets in there that allows us to uh, click a button. It spews out a 25% randomized point that we can then go audit our own inventory with and come back. Customer loves that because I'm, our customer, like I said, they're very secure. They're very paranoid people and they want an inventory of everything touching their network. Paranoid people. Okay. Um, so the secret sauce is paranoid people plus... Um, we won't get more work. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what it does is it makes us stand out from our competitors as we have the ability to guarantee you uh-huh. a better than 99% inventory of everything in here. You will know what's touching your equipment. You will know what's on your network when we have it. Yeah, I mean, I have whole companies that are, their, their only job is to go out and inventory equipment and just like inventory, right. like what, what does our network have? Literally, and it's it. really hard to uh, it's really hard to get a third party in here when they all need you know top secret SCI clearances. This is um, I'm always looking for ways for the complainers in the tech world uh, that are complaining. I shouldn't say complainers because I mean honestly, it's not their fault. Um, <laughs> I just feel like saying complainers today. Uh, the people that are constantly saying. No one cares about security and until we get, you know, breached and, you know, we lose everything and, and no one cares until, you know, something happens. 
Uh, so what's the argument? How do you get people to care before they don't care when they don't care? And uh, I think part of that argument is, is not insurance. It's not the insurance approach. Like if we don't do this, we could lose everything. It might be if we don't do this, uh, we won't get more work. Right. And that's the point of turning it into money. Like I said, it costs more money to do it the right way. It always has. Mm. But if your customers are interested in a company that does it the right way, then you're moving in the right direction. It doesn't always cost more money to do it the right way. Just, I'm going to play. All right. I've get there. I'll give you that. Uh, and, and, the reason, and, and the reason being is because there's a lot of old crap still out there. In other words, sometimes it costs more money because your systems are so legacy and so old that in that case, it doesn't cost more money, but that's... Oh, sorry. Complete squirrel moment here. You go. A couple of years ago, since I know you like the phone switching thing, you familiar with Avaya? Who are they? Really? (laughs) No, of course I know. (laughs) You mean Avaya that's... Okay. Avaya that... Well, sorry, my, my I don't know why. The Sometimes when I really yell my microphone, ago. of course I know. Um, the uh, uh, sometimes when I get really excited, my microphone sh- shuts off because I, I'm yelling too loud. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm whisper about Avaya here, which I used to say was a sinking sh- submarine, like going down like a ship under the water, right? Um, and recently, they have made one of the best decisions that they've ever made, which is to partner up with Ring Central to sell their cloud product. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, so anyways, go on. So we had two giant, ancient boat anchor Avaya PBXs running the phone system in our entire company. Mm-hmm. We, in geolocation and, me, and various geo, in, in different geolocations? All, all in the same state. Okay. But they were running it and... Hub and spoke, MPLS, or some kind of like, you know, frame relay even maybe? Because I know there's a lot of frame relay uh, sitting around. You know, honestly, I don't know because I I was on the network team at the time. Anyway, big boxes. Uh, We pushed pushed this thing to try to get onto uh, Cisco VoIP setup. Uh, We had a guy, CCIE, he knew what he was doing. Oh, wow. I had to propose it multiple times saying, do you know how much money we'll save moving off of these things? Mm-hmm. Even if you don't count the electricity they're eating, and the and it finally got contract. down to a point. Yeah, yeah. the maintenance contract is what did it. Yeah. We were the See? maintenance contract was like three hundred thousand dollars a year, and the only reason it was so big is because we had one of two remaining switches that went end of life into support in twenty twelve. Yeah, and what are you paying for the only other switch? Pound sand. You're, you're paying. I mean, really, that's what you're calling. Yeah, I mean, anyways. The ahead. only other switch that we could get spare parts from was at Avaya. And the only reason they still had it is because we still had it. Well, you could eBay. <laughs> you can go to eBay. eBay we actually did have to go to eBay. eBay several times to buy replacement parts. I mean, this is this is the state of repair it was in. But there is a... That's still I don't, I don't think I need to explain it, but VoIP is a huge cost savings if done right. Yes. It still exists that way. I don't know if the Cisco call manager is the right is the right way for everybody. I, if you have someone that's certified, um, which is now you become your that person has now become your single point of failure. If that guy quits or goes somewhere else, um, you've got to hire people that are very are, are very well trained to do you know to run a Cisco call manager and stuff like that. So I don't think that that's always the best of options. And I think that's again, um, 
that is the not easier, harder methodology. Um, I do think there's ways to do things a lot easier in the voice world. I don't think I absolutely know for a fact. Um, sure. Uh, but yeah, um, it's, uh, that was a, that was a good story. Um, so anyways, what, what, what did happen? What, what was, uh, what happened? Um, well with the Avaya specifically, it crashed one time and didn't come back up and it forced the hand. Oh my gosh. There was a power outage at one of our sites. Uh-huh. It, the ups were only good for a couple hours. The generator, apparently no one put fuel in it. I don't know what happened to it, but it went down and it did not come back up. Wait, so you were just without phone service? Well, luckily in that campus, because we had been running a pilot program for the VoIP systems. Oh my God. We already had a semi infrastructure. So you just turned it up with our, with our wonderful VAR. Mm-hmm. We called him up and said, Hey man, we need like 300 of those phones right now. He like put, he put his phone on, he like put his phone on mute and then <laughs> like, like yelled and then took it off mute. He's like, okay. Um, it's going to be tough. And but, but we're gonna you know, it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to say it too. Uh, you can cut it if you want to believe it, whatever. But we, we worked with A&M and those dudes, they put phones in the back of their F-150s and drove them up here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I would have. We'd have been like, oh man, I don't know. We'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> they've, been, they've been great partners with us for a long time now. So, uh, Awesome. Aren't those, are they out of um, Colorado Springs or where are those guys out of? For some reason, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where specifically. They might even be out of like New Mexico. Okay. But I know they have an office up this way somewhere. So, Okay. So that was, so that was just, you know, by chance. Well, I don't want to say by chance, but that was like, you know, I don't know, a blessing that you had, that you guys had been testing that and turning that up at the same time. Well, it would have been sunk. Right. And we've been working with them. We, we had confidence that they were going to make the right decision on the board sooner or later. Uh So the guys probably had the phones that we knew we Uh were going to order someday in their stock room. Yep. I think it's just a good example of, I think it's just a good example of, look, um, on-site PBXs are a single point of failure. If you have a, another redundant switch down the street, great, but those are still, those are still boxes in, uh, you know, whatever data center or server closet room, whatever you want to call it. And you can say that you're redundant, but I mean, it's, it's, oh, you can only do so much. It's not like it's a a massive network of pops and, and various different, you know, data centers and HIPAA compliant data centers or FIPS compliant, whatever it is that you want. Um, It's just, it's, it's a, it's a dead model. And it's important to note, these weren't the like IP based Avias. These these weren't the ones that did VoIP. These were POTS. Yeah, RJ11, like still plugging yeah, in. Yeah, so they were them. all hardwired from wherever it was in the campus straight back to that PBX. That had to have been, that had to have been a circus act, turning up that new phone system in that short amount of time, porting numbers, everything. I can just imagine. <sighs> it but, wasn't uh, fun. Uh, well. It was a good weekend, though. I, I think we're going to leave it on this note. We're going to leave it on this note. It's not easier, it's harder. And, but we want to get more work. So we're going to work harder. (laughs) Um, uh, and, or it could, you know, it doesn't always have to cost more money. Um, you know what I mean? It really doesn't, but I really like that theme of it's not easier. It's harder. Um, especially when it comes to the security piece. 
it's definitely the right way to go, though. I mean, in my mind, someone who's been security minded for 20 plus years now, the security is the way to go if you won't actually care about your data. Um, last, last piece of advice, last message, uh, whatever it is um, to anyone listening out there, what would it be? If you're in IT, if you're a manager or even a first level worker, be friends with your security department. Be friends with inter, inter, you know, the, the IA guys because sometimes they want to push things that are in your best interest. And if you team up, you have a better shot. Oh, that's, that's, such, a, that's, such, a, that's, like a, that's such a friendly... Well, we've got friendly fire. What if they, what if they fire back? So I think it it's kind of goes both ways there, right? But I, you're saying it's easier if, if the network guys are, are friends with the security guys. How do we do that? Network, network and sysadmins. Yeah, how do we do that? How do we make friends with them? Um, well, for me personally, when I took the position, it was letting them know that I cared about security and that I wanted to see what they wanted. Like it, it happened that we had similar goals. So making that partnership was a lot easier for me. Oh, man. Anthony, great having you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm leaving it on that note because it's, it's a great note. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> 